Good evening, listeners and students of Hitler's Table Talk. Thanks for joining us for episode 55 on April 16, 2015. I'm Carolyn Yeager. And I'm Ray Goodwin. And Ray, we're going to be coming down on the home stretch tonight, aren't we? That's exactly right. Uh, this uh, magnificent, uh, entertaining reading uh, is. We're closing in on those final two or three pages, you know, and uh, it's fascinating. It's uh, as we skip, so uh, it. Uh, I think it's going to be a very good show. Right, I do too, and I, I want to just let the listeners know if they haven't already seen it written down uh, in one place or another that next week will be our final show for this series, and we will be doing just probably the last section from the book, and then we're going to be discussing what we think about it, and uh, we're going to invite callers after we do a little discussing of our own and see if we have any callers who want to weigh in on what they've, uh, I, I know there have been people who have been listening all the way through this uh, series of programs, and tonight is is the 55th, next week will be the 56th week, and so they may have something they'd like to say, we'd sure like to hear from them. So that's our plan, that's right? Good, good, you got it. Right, so I guess we'll just get started. We're on the um, 17th of June in 1943 already, and there's a timeline for the 17th, which is the Allies bomb Sicily and the Italian mainland as signs increase of a forthcoming invasion. So they're they're bombing Sicily and the Italian mainland. Right. Um, preparing to invade. So on this okay. bad news, <laughs> we now see what uh, what Mr. Hitler has to say. 17th June, 1943, evening. The great cataclysms of nature, the fear of the unknown. I cannot believe that the various ages in the history of the globe lasted as long as the experts would have us believe. In any case, they have no proofs to offer of the correctness of their hypotheses. I have the feeling that in their estimates, the fear of the unknown and of natural catastrophe have played their part. During the recent earthquakes in Wartenburg, the principal preoccupation of the press was to reassure the public by insisting that there was no grave danger and no sign any aggravation uh, of, uh, of the phenomenon. It is quite extraordinary how many men there are who are incapable of facing reality and who, when face-to-face with danger, cannot calmly make plans to meet it. Such people are, for the most part, cowards, and the fear of the unknown is ineradicably ingrained in them. There's just a little short intro there, but it kind of sets the table here for what's to follow. Well, maybe so, yeah. And, you know, he's kind of saying that today we've got, because of our scientific advancements, we're able to foresee so many things and protect ourselves in ways that men didn't used to be able to. And maybe we've uh, lost the ability to face hard reality when it when it comes to us. He's certainly dealing right. with facing, uh, and, and, facing hard reality now. Just, I can't help but think back on the uh, story of the Titanic and 
when it was built uh, and declared unsinkable and and the attitude of a lot of mankind at that time saw that feat of engineering and they said, boy, you know, we've got nature on the run. We don't have to worry about this anymore. And then they were brought back to reality when the ship did sink. And to me, where, where he says here, uh, fear of the unknown, fear of natural catastrophe, and what, uh, and what an incident like that has done is, is to, to wake some people up and say, hey, you know, you're not in total control here, but uh, you still need to uh, address the situation. And and that's why I think that the Fuhrer said here is, uh, what he said here is it, it is quite extraordinary how many men there are who are incapable of facing reality and when face-to-face with that danger cannot calmly make plans to meet it. And... Uh, well, I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what it is. So he's talking about men. Yeah, yeah, you know that. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes when you really are face-to-face with something that you know you can't avoid. I've been, I have been in that situation. Oh, sure. I and think I we all have. very yeah. calm. In fact, you kind of go into another dimension. Uh, less than my experience, and, and you sort of know what's going to happen. But I wasn't also fighting it. I wasn't able to, so I just, you know, wait for the inevitable. But in those cases, it didn't actually come, so I'm still here. But but you do, sure. I mean, you become kind of calm when something really is upon you that could take your life. Mm-hmm. And I think you do True. think fairly clearly if you have any time to do so. Right. He's actually dealing with different things. That. Well, that's yeah. true, and, and it makes you appreciate him so much, too, because, you know, he has to be in the forefront. He has to handle these uh, natural catastrophes and things like this. Uh, being the leader, the Fuhrer, he has to exhibit stamina and courage in the face of this stuff because, boy, what a stampede if he uh, showed any yeah. kind of wavering. Yeah, and uh, so that's probably what he's been thinking about. He's no doubt thinks about right. that. Fairly often. Okay, then we'll move to June 19th, 1943, at table. Big battleships, the infantry of the seas. Formerly, I planned to construct the most powerful squadron of battleships in the world and intended to name the two mightiest of them, Ulrich von Hutten and the Getz von Berlikingen. I am now very pleased that I abandoned the idea for if we had if we had such a squadron we should be under a moral obligation to use it of what practical assistance could such a squadron be today it would be condemned to playing the part of the last of the knights in armor evolution these days has been so swift that it is now the infantry of the sea which assumes the prime importance apart from submarines Our greatest need is for little ships, powerful corvettes, destroyers, and the like. These are the classes that carry on the fight. The Japanese today possess the most powerful fleet of battleships in the world, but it is very difficult to use them in action. For them, the greatest danger comes from the air. Remember the Bismarck. Yeah. Quite, you know, that's quite a military kind of commentary there because uh, it didn't take long after, actually before World War II, but once it got going to realize that the most valuable 
ships that the Navy possessed were the aircraft carrier, and they uh, had come to realize that the battleship, though certainly not obsolete, was uh, not as useful, not nearly as useful as the air, uh, aircraft carrier. And, uh, and, and he even says this in the end here. He says, you know, these Japanese, they have these great fleet of battleships, but they are very vulnerable. Uh, the greatest mm -hmm. danger to them comes from the air, and that's true. That's, yeah. uh, that's what knocked Japan back up on its heels was the American aircraft carriers. Well, what the, the battles move from the seas to the air. Um, yes. That's, that's yeah. the truth, and the, the airplane became the, the weapon. Uh, the most uh, efficient, effective weapon, and not the big ships. Plus, then radar had a lot to do with that. Uh, the development of That's radar, right. a lot of things. So I've got a number of timelines because there's a big uh, jump here. Not too big of a jump, but see, we're coming up to um, the 24th of June. So I went given from the 21st to the 24th. On the 21st. Operation Cartwheel opens with landings by the United States 4th Marine Raider Battalions at Seggy Point on New Georgia in the Solomon Islands, beginning the New Georgia campaign, which will not be secured until August, but they do secure it, I guess. And then on the 23rd, American troops land in the Tobriand Islands close to New Guinea. This is all in the Pacific. The American strategy of driving up the Southwest Pacific by island hopping continues. But this is more to uh, my taste here. The 24th, continuing attacks against the Ruhr Industrial Valley. One result is the evacuation of large numbers of German civilians from the area. Well, I looked into this uh, Ruhr Industrial Valley uh, attacks uh, in June of uh, 43. And I found some interesting things. On May, it was the uh, Dam Busters night attack by 19 aircraft uh, under wing commander Guy Gibson against the Roar Dams. That's a big, that famous one. It's uh, May 16th, uh, during which bouncing bombs breached the Mona and Eder Dams, causing severe flooding and loss of civilian life in the Roar Valley below them but doing little damage to the industrial installations. Gibson is later awarded the Victoria Cross. Now here, you know, we know what they wanted to do. They wanted to discomfort the uh, civilians and, and do some industrial damage, but they didn't really do that, but they did discomfort the civilians quite a bit. And there was, uh, they continued with that in June, on June uh, 21st and June 24th. On the 21st, the RAF launches a heavy raid on Krefeld in the Ruhr, but they lose 44 aircraft. I thought, well, good. But on the 24th, they conducted a heavy raid on Elberfeld in the Ruhr. Well, it doesn't say anything about that. So they were continuing to beat on those people over there with their raids in June of 43. Mm -hmm. Okay, 24th, June 1943, evening. The vibrant pulse of Berlin, Vienna, the home of music, Mozart, Slav blood and German blood, Beethoven, far in against Vienna, the new capital of the Reich, loyalty at Linz, a remark of Trotsky, the interests of the Reich are paramount. In Berlin, I think, people work harder than anywhere else. 
I know of no other city in which it would have been possible to complete the construction of the Reich's Chancellery in nine months. The Berlin workman is unique as a swift and efficient craftsman. There's nothing to touch him in Munich or Vienna where the infusion of foreign blood, Polish, Czech, Slav, Italian, still has influence. When one speaks of Vienna and music and proclaims Vienna to be the most musical city in the world, one must not forget that at the time of our great composers, Vienna was the imperial city. She was an attraction for the whole world and was thus the city which offered artists and the, the artists the greatest scope and opportunity. In spite of this, how shabbily the musicians were treated there. It is not true that either Beethoven or Hayden had any success there during their lifetime. Mozart's Don Juan was a failure there. Why then did Mozart go to Vienna? Simply because he hoped to get a pension from the emperor, which he never obtained. Mozart's family, it has been established, came from Augsburg. He was therefore not an Austrian, but a Swabian. The whole blossoming of our music in Vienna is not due to the town. Such things do not spring from their environment, but from the genius of a race. Really creative music is composed partly of inspiration and partly of a sense of composition. The inspiration is of Slavonic origin. The art of composition is of Germanic it is when these two mingle in one man that the matter of genius appears. In Bach's music, it is the composition which is marvelous, and he certainly had no drop of Slav blood in his veins. As regards Beethoven, Beethoven on the other hand, one glance at his head shows that he comes from a different race. It is not pure chance that the British have never produced a composer of genius. It is because they are a pure Germanic race. Do not for a moment imagine that I'm hostile to Vienna. I criticize with equal vigor everything in Berlin which displeases me. My task is a far greater one, and I do not think in terms of Vienna or Berlin. My historical sense tells me that things will change in the future, and so I must needs think of what may happen when I'm no longer here for Vienna to become the sole center of attraction for the Austrian portion of our territories would be dangerous for the whole Reich. For this reason, I feel impelled to take the steps to counteract any such possibility, and for this reason, too, I'm anxious to create other centers of culture in Austria. A monopoly of cultural attraction in Vienna would have serious political repercussions. And these, if we digest the lessons that history has to teach us, are repercussions we cannot tolerate. Munich presents no such dangers, for the radius of its cultural influence does not go beyond the borders of Bavaria. It's my duty to ensure that an evolution does not occur which will inevitably lead to disaster. I can well appreciate a sentimental affection for Vienna. But when great political decisions have to be taken, they must be taken in the light of logic and cold reason. Therefore, all that Vienna has drained from its neighboring provinces must be channeled back into the Gaul. Furthermore, 
I will not tolerate any rivalry between Vienna and Berlin. Berlin is the capital of the Reich and will remain the capital of the Reich. I once toyed with the idea of moving the capital and thought of moving it to Lake Moritz in, the, in Mecklenburg. But Speer persuaded me to abandon the idea because the soil there is as bad from the building point of view as it is in Berlin. I shall see to it that Berlin acquires all the characteristics of a great capital. But none of this is based on any sentimental preference. I do not like the Berliners more than I like the Viennese. I feel equally at home anywhere in the Reich, and my love for all Germans is equal, as long as they do not range themselves against the interests of the Reich, of which I am the guardian. In this respect, I behave as if I, as if I am in the midst of my family. But if I see any province or city trying to make unreasonable claims to its own individual advantage, then I am up in arms at once. Do not tell me that Vienna has made heavy sacrifices in this war and that her sons are dying gallantly on the battlefield. The same can be said of all towns and all their sons throughout Germany. That is but the expression of a clear-cut sense of duty and is no cause for tears. I should indeed be a bad son of my own country if I did not place her in this respect side by side with Germany herself. No Gauleiter may expect more support from me, financial or otherwise, than that dictated by the interests of the Reich. If I make a gift of a building to a Gau or a city, it is not a personal gift, for I myself am a poor man. It's a gift from the whole German people. Mark well this fact, for therein lies my great responsibility. Who can say that I do not hold Vienna in high esteem? Have I not sent there a, the man whom I consider most suitable and most capable of directing the affairs of the Gau? The Viennese are so touchy that the simple fact that I have started some building in Linz is enough to upset them. But that does not worry me, and I remain quite impartial as regards all the Gaua. I must, however, say that in Vienna I see a source of potential danger if that city were to be given special privileges. It's perfectly true that I was received in Vienna with joy and jubilation. But the same thing occurred at Linz, Klagenfurt, Hamburg, Cologne, and everywhere else. And in any case, I hope I shall not be expected to give preference to any town on account of the fervor of its welcome to me. Their acclam uh, acclamations, it goes without saying, are not personal, but acclamations for the leader of the German state. Of course, the friendly reception in Vienna delighted me, but that will not prevent me from doing my duty as I conceive it in the interest of the whole state. In such things, sentiment has no part. I told Heigruber, Linz owes all it possesses and all that it will possess to the Reich. For this reason, Linz should become the personification of the Reich, and the facade of every building in the city should bear the inscription, Gift of the German Reich. Linz realize it, realizes it, as this example will show you. 
I read in the Linzer Tagesschau Post that some cabaret artists had maliciously attacked the Berliners. The paper went on to state indignantly that such behavior towards the capital of the Reich would not be tolerated in Linz. The right to criticize is a common right, but not the right to vilify. The petty rivalries between town and town, district and district, have by no means yet been suppressed, and this is a danger which may reappear after the war. Now, therefore, is the time to eliminate all calls for rivalry. It is perhaps a blessing in disguise that I was for so long a stateless person, for it has taught me the tremendous value of a united, excuse me, a unified Germany. Trotsky once said, Germany has cities, but she possesses no capital. To that I will add that she must and she shall have one. I shall take care that no town in the Reich can rival the capital. I've examined certain projects for Vienna, but they demand a financial backing from the Reich, which I do not consider should be accorded to any city but the capital of the Reich. Any other decision would be wrong. Vienna must, of course, be cleaned up and cleared of slums, and this will be done. I have already cleared the Jews out of the city, but I should like to see the Czechs go, too. Whatever new construction may be undertaken in Vienna, it would be folly for her to try to surpass the existing glorious monuments of the imperial city. It would be a criminal act on my part to use the money of the Reich to create a situation which one day might develop into a menace to that same Reich. My sense of history and my political instinct combine to forbid me to act in any way other than as I am doing. Chirac, it is your duty to see that Vienna retains her high level of culture. My duty is to safeguard the interests of the Reich, and I expect every Gauleiter to understand that clearly. To achieve great things, it is necessary to burn many of one's boats behind one, especially those which are laden with personal prejudices. Reason alone must have the last word. It's a bit of a lengthy section, but uh, a lot of good stuff in there, and uh, just a total affirmation of the importance of German unity, of nationalism, of cutting petty rivalries, uh, you know, and, and, and actually coming out and saying, hey, we are going to have a capital of the Reich. It's going to be Berlin, and there should be no fussing and rivalry back here and there and the other and petty, uh, petty complaining. And that's why I think he kept saying, Carolyn, occasionally he would say this would present a danger to the unity of the nation. Well, and the way uh, he explains it is it's, it's uh, perfectly uh, logical to me. Well, you know, the, the last paragraph gives the key to this whole section, which is Shirak. Uh, obviously, Shirak is there. He's speaking to him at the end there, yes. saying, that it's your right. duty, saying that it's your duty to see that Vienna retains her high level of culture. But Heim doesn't tell us that Shirak is present for this right. meal. That's right. And he usually does that, but he doesn't give any of the information here. But we find out at the end that Shirak is there. And so he's talking a lot about the cities, and he's talking about the Gauleiters and the Gaus. 
And sometimes when you uh, the guy when he mentions the guy, he's using it in the plural, which is pronounced as yes. as the singular. So that was the reason for this particular conversation about Vienna. And Vienna is truly uh, a magnificent city. Uh, when I was there, though, my impression was not as good as I expected it to be because it seemed like it was um, too a very big and spread out and uh, and noisy. Lots of traffic. Some of the buildings in the government art museums and the government parliament and everything was just just absolutely fantastic. But somehow it it wasn't set off for me as well as it was in other places because there was so much traffic going all around it and past it and everything. But it's really it really is um, magnificent if you can concentrate on it. And so they're used to, as he said so often. Before that, the Viennese are used to being the most important and having everything because the, everything in Austria went to them, and it was the capital of that whole entire empire. But he says it can't be greater than Berlin. <laughs> so he's working on Berlin. He's really not hadn't he'd been working on Berlin, on Munich, and on Linz, and a little yes. bit and a little bit on a few other places. But those mainly. And now Linz was in uh, Austria, but that was to make something beyond Vienna in Linz, you know, to make a second center of culture. Exactly. He wasn't going to make it a government kind of place, but a cultural place. So th- that's basically what he's uh, defending here. And uh, Chirac, I'm sure, went along with everything, but he, he he had mentioned once before in this table talk that Chirac, once he went to, v- to Vienna as their gauleiter, he started becoming so Viennese that that he thinks he's uh, more uh, maybe too attached <laughs> to uh, to the to the Viennese way or something. Well, and exactly. So I mean, it's you know putting Vienna mm-hmm. in front of Germany in essence. In in a, well, it was Germany. Here's the thing, you know. Once they uh, annexed uh, Austria with the with the full mostly support of the Austrians, uh, it was all right. Germany. And this yes. is so, it, it hadn't been, though, for so long that it's, you have to kind of remind yourself that that's the case. You know, there could still be. Yes. But, uh, the, but all the Austrians, including in Vienna, had uh, gone 100% along with everything. I don't know. I never right. heard about any Viennese uh, complaining about anything. But he's just discussing this. But a lot of things I thought were interesting in here were that, well, when he talks about the difference between the Germanic and the Slavic uh, musicians, yeah. and he's kind of makes a little rule here, and I, I think that you can't be quite so hard and fast on that. I understand yeah. uh, that there's probably a lot of truth in the Slavonic sense of harmony and, and romance and that kind of inspiration. That's true. That is true, and that the German, Germans can have more of a concentration on on the composition of that the intellectual side of it all. It's interesting that he thinks that Beethoven was not Germanic because of his big head. And uh, it doesn't have a Nordic head anyway, uh, according to Hitler. And uh, Hitler, he'll say things about this. Some of it, sometimes I like it and sometimes I have to question it. It's interesting that he said Mozart was a Swabian, which is basically what I am, uh, and not a, an Austrian. But I, I think that those that part of Germany and Austria are so close together, kind of are mixed mixed in together. And then when he was talking about Vienna, uh, well, he was talking about the whole designing part of what what the great cities were. And it came to me that Hitler 
was really designing the Reich all the way around, not just artistically and as far as architecturally and so on, but he was he was a great designer, and he was designing a, pl a place, a Reich for Germans to live in that was a wonderful place for them to live that worked for them in every way. You know, I could just see that, that this is what he was all about. Uh, this I is agree. what he wanted to create. And one right. time uh, that, you know, at the production manager at Barnes Review, um, Angel, Paul Angel, I used to know him pr pretty well. And uh, when I was working on some of the things, well, probably working on the, we were uh, doing the uh, Ein Andrew Hitler work, he said to me one time that Hitler should be called a designer, or he thought Hitler was a designer. And I said, now that took me by surprise, and I was thinking of Hitler as an artist. And I said, oh, no, you know, Hitler was an artist, not a designer, because I was thinking of designer as in kind of the way that he was a designer, Paul. And I thought Paul was kind of liking him to being a, a print designer, or, a, you know what I mean, a commercial designer of some kind, that kind of a designer. But yes. um, I well, that came to my mind when I thought of this because I thought he may have had a broader meaning than that and what he said. But I certainly think that um, I certainly agree with that now. All of a sudden it's like, wow, that is the best way for me to see him at this moment. And, uh, you know, from all this time that I've been dealing with all of this, that that's what he was doing. In everything he did, he was he was always concerned with how things, how the design was and and how things were designed, and that meant even even into uh, the working the working situation, the economics, and the everything. You know, the the job opportunities and so on. Everything was like to design this perfect place uh, for Germans, a perfect German paradise, you might say. And I think he was uh, very capable of doing it, and he was doing it you know, quite well. Um, I agree. That's, that, I found that very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that really struck me, Carolyn, you know, we've been exposed to all of this damn garbage for 70 years or whatever about Hitler and his uh, megalomaniac and uh, egotist and all this stuff. He was a very modest man, as we know, the Fuhrer was. And... There was one section right here that I really, I read it over two or three times, and I'm thinking, uh, it, it really prompted me to think. And it's where he says, uh, he's talking about the receptions he got uh, mm -hmm. wherever he went. And he said, mm -hmm. it's perfectly true that I was received in Vienna with joy and jubilation, but the same thing occurred at Linz, Klagenfurt, Hamburg, Cologne, everywhere else. And, you know, and then he says this very significantly. Their acclamations, it goes without saying, are not personal, but acclamations for the leader of the German state, meaning it could have been someone else other than him as the leader of the German state, and they well, would have sure. been yeah, just as yeah. Uh, gracious in their receptions of him. In his mind, that's true. Now, you know, to me, there's nobody comparable in the German state to him, uh, and, and I'm sure he was correct in that they would have given the same reception. But that man was quite loved by the German people. And, uh, well, he's talking and, about the Austrians here. Isn't he talking about all these Austrian cities? Yeah, well, uh, then, yeah, Hamburg, Vienna, Cologne. Uh, oh, Hamburg, Cologne. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Hamburg, okay. Cologne. So he says everywhere. Oh, okay. 
And, yeah. And they received him, you know, as the uh, as the leader of the German Reich. And that's his personal modesty. That's the kind of man, one of his uh, characteristics that made him exceptional. And uh, He never wanted so to be I, idolized. He always said that's that. Right, that's right. That's it. He didn't like that. He thought no. it was stupid, you know, and it did. It wasn't. It wasn't fitting to uh, to the for the people to do that. And a long range so, thinker will think that way because he, you know, he's thinking long range all the time. He is, he's right. thinking, he is. okay, uh, about when I'm not here, you mm-hmm. know, how this thing should hopefully function and thing. And there's going to be other people in charge one of these days. And, and you know, a wonderful attitude uh, along those lines. And uh, But anyway, that was pretty significant for me. Mm-hmm. Well, here's something I'd like to also comment on. Um, sure. Because I had to figure it out when he's talking about Lintz, and he says um, that it owes all, its, all that it possesses to the Reich. Well, uh, I could kind of understand that. And then he said that every the facade of every building in the city should bear the inscription, Gift of the German Reich. Of course, he wasn't really, uh, that wasn't uh, actual what he would want to have on there, but just kind of a way of yeah. saying, although maybe it could maybe it could have had a small inscription saying that. And I thought, well, what does he mean by that, Gift of the German Reich? And finally, I realized that what he meant was he's spending a lot of rice money in Linz. <laughs> he exactly. Had, he never he never got around to doing it, but he was going to. You know, I mean, he mm-hmm. he did get around to it. They were they ran out of time. He had all the plans, and that was his most favorite project. And it was all worked out finally in the model uh, that uh, Giesler was in charge of. And there was all sorts of cultural buildings there all along the river bank and so on. And he was going to put all that there in Linz to make it the cultural center, one of the cultural centers of uh, of Europe, I guess, something like that. Sure. And uh, so that was all. That wasn't money that came from Linz, the Linz people. So Linz was being given all of this, but of course uh, they never got it. And and once hit, once the war was over, they didn't want to build any of it either. And they don't. They've only cheated themselves. That way, but that's the way it is. The only thing that got built was the Nibelungen Bridge. That's yeah. there that he built. But you, you know, uh, personally, and I may be far off or off base to some people on this, but I'm glad you pointed that out because what I thought of there, Carolyn, uh, Lenz and the German Reich, and and him talking about the building building facade should say given by the German Reich or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought of the WPA. I thought of uh, Roosevelt's uh, uh, projects in uh, fighting uh, the Great Depression, trying to put men to work and whatever, and all of the bridges that were built and the renovations that were done uh, in various cities across the United States. And then then they had these plaques, you know, that set up there. This project completed 1934 by workers, you know, whatever. And I thought, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's drawing us. There's a, a that city of Lens had all his improvements due to, as you said, money from the Reich. Some things were done then. Well, they were building autobahn. They were doing a lot of things, and that bridge was built. But all these other things that he was going to create there um, never got built. 
And that was during wartime, so that was, uh, or right, right before wartime. So that wasn't when uh, they had a, they had to put people to work. They didn't, they had a labor shortage by then. So yeah. uh, it's not, it's not an exact comparison. But I was, I was just trying to link the government assistance yeah. to a particular city, and a government project enabled those things to happen. Yeah, well, that's what he means about that. He said this is the whole Reich that's uh, where the money is coming from to put this. It was his decision, and his decision alone to do that in Linz. Nobody right. got way, you know. And then another thing that's interesting to me is when he uh, was talking about the that he, they had cleared the Jews out of Vienna, and he's all he was has said before. Of course, Vienna was such a big place and a big mess, really, for all the glory that it glorious things that it had in it. but uh, And so they, he always said we have to clean up Vienna. And he says they've cleaned up and cleared the slums and, and cleared the Jews out, but he'd like to see the Czechs go too. So here again we go, uh, this is 1943, and they've already had conversations about how the Czechs behave pretty well and they like the Czechs and uh, the Czechs are so close to German and have so much German in them, and they can work with the Czechs and so on. But he, he still doesn't want them in, uh, in the cities in the Reich, and he doesn't want them in, in Vienna. Maybe part of it is his memory going back to when he was there as a young man and thought those Czechs were, were causing too much trouble and making the place not German enough and... Uh, but he wanted to see. But I thought that was an interesting sentence, and I was kind of surprised at it, actually, that he would say that in passing. But that's that's his feeling. Well, all I can say is he doesn't want non-Germans in Germany except as guests and just workers, and but not as permanent residents unless it's just a small number. That's the way I see him as being. Yeah. But now here, I'll just make this real quick point. You know, here this, uh, I said in the beginning we had the Allies going to invading Sicily and, and working yeah. on uh, invading Italy. And he's not speaking about anything like that. And he's talking, of course, the fact that Chirac is there explains why he's uh, saying what he's saying in particular. But he, he would be saying something else that had nothing to do with it anyway. Because then we have to remember that he's not ignoring things, that this is his relaxing time that he's supposed to get his mind away from, from the war because he was uh, kind of obsessed about that, as you can imagine, most of the time and working on it most of the time. So people shouldn't get the idea that he's just being frivolous and talking about art during all this serious war. Right. Oh, well, here we got uh, more timeline. This is a bunch of it because are we going off into 1944 now? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we, we actually we jumped uh, yeah into that from we jumped from about nine months from June of forty three to March of forty four, uh, right? Where this this last section of the book, part five, nineteen forty four, uh, you know, thirteenth of March and then all the way to twenty ninth, thirtieth of November, which were the last entries, and so that gap, uh, very significant gap there. Uh, and I'm sure you did the same thing, Carolyn. I compiled a few things here that were happening during that time, and it's, to mm -hmm. me, it's quite significant because the stress the stress level is going up uh, for the leaders of the Reich uh, militarily and and everything else because things have turned 
you know, very uh, definitely against Germany and its chances of, of fighting off uh, the world. And uh, so, you know, I'm marking well, you those things here. Say, yeah, I want you to read yours. I, I would say they've become defenders instead of uh, That's aggressors. That's true. You know, That's exactly right. And, and they're only now trying to hold on to what they've, what they've got, and they keep being pushed back. Probably they know they've still got the right, and they want to hang on to that, so they don't feel like That's they've right. lost everything yet. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and uh, I may have mentioned this before, but during my research years ago, uh, I learned that uh, when Germany started fighting a defensive battle in this war, and they could see what was happening, as I said, they sent uh, with this Ribbentrop uh, or uh, representatives of the Reich to the Vatican to try mm -hmm. to appeal to England and the United States that, look, the Soviet communists are rolling into Europe, and if we can call a peace with you folks here on the Western Front and you turn us loose, we will protect Europe from the Soviets and we will even back up to our own borders. Uh, but, of course, they were met with disdain. Now, mm -hmm. what I came up here was uh, October 1943. Uh, Cardell Hull, Anthony Eden, and Molotov meet in Moscow to address the post-war reconstruction and to create a world organization to, quote, maintain international peace, unquote, and of course, which was the United Nations that came out of that. But uh, uh, let's see, uh, the fly in the ointment at that conference was Poland. What to do with Poland? Uh, and then moving on from October to November 1943 in Cairo, the United States, England, and China agreed to try to exact unconditional surrender peace terms from Japan. And that, uh, of course, meant uh, chasing Japan out of everywhere that they had expanded to. The Allies at this time are dropping tons of bombs on Germany, devastating mm -hmm. the civilian population, but actually doing little to relieve the pressure on Russia or to impair the German war effort. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? And let me just add, while you're at this point, yeah. I, I've got that, uh, I thought it was kind of significant. Uh, it will just impress me that on October 22nd and 23rd, uh, and there was an air raid, uh, this is 43, there was an air raid on Castle, which caused a seven-day firestorm. A mm. seven-day firestorm. I never had... Uh, well, if I had, I forgot about it, but I didn't. I thought that was pretty impressive. I know Capitol real, real hard. You know, they really tried to, they really made a mess of that place. Also, in October, Germany was producing B-2 rockets and trying to find, come up with something, you know, that would make a difference. Turn the tide. Turn the tide, sure. yeah. And the people of Naples in September of 43 were... Sensing as they sensed the approach of the Allies, they rose up against the German occupiers. Isn't that how it's done? You know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, so I talked about that a little bit, that kind of thing, a little bit on last Monday. So anyway, go on with what you've got. Well, you, I'm glad you mentioned the firestorm bombing because 
that was learned by all of those waves and waves of bombers that combining incendiaries with the explosives uh, and concentrating it and so much of it in one area caused a, what came to be known as a firestorm, which was like a, a tornado in the, in the heart of the city they were bombing, which then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it just sucked in everything around it with tremendous winds of 100 miles an hour or whatever, pulling it in towards this firestorm, and it was so destructive. And the Allies watched this and saw what was happening, and they thought, oh, boy, we've got something that we can use. And then, of course, in February in '45, uh, they hit Dresden. They did other cities like that with that firebombing that was horrendous. You talk about a war crime to the nth degree. But, yeah, I mean, that, that was the kind of the first instance of it that the Allies realized, oh, boy, we can cause this kind of destruction and, and a, torn, a, a fire tornado, in essence, at the castle. So I'm glad you mentioned yeah, it that. Really, then, it wasn't the Allies. It was the British. The British were the yeah. ones designing the firestorm bombing. The Americans weren't doing firestorm bombing. I'm not trying to defend the Americans, but they just weren't. No. They were doing regular bombing. They were doing uh, daytime bombing of... Uh, they they might have uh, they they cooperated with the British in some of these late, but that was on in forty four and forty five. A lot yeah, of it in forty five, you know. But yep. they, they didn't uh, start that, and they didn't do the, mm -hmm. the first of it for about the, for about a year. It was all British. Right. In nineteen forty four, the Russians freed Leningrad from two and a half years of siege and began their westward drive. In February, the Russians crossed the 1939 Polish and Russian frontier. June the 4th, 1944, United States forces liberated Rome. In August, the British marched into Florence, Italy. And of course, June the 6th, Operation Overlord, uh, the Normandy invasion, mm -hmm. Allied invasion of Normandy. And in October of 1944, American troops crossed onto German soil. So that's what I had, Carolyn. Yeah, well, that's very good. I kind of see things that interest me personally, and so then I, <laughs> I put those down. But I don't know if you mentioned the Tehran Conference. I guess you maybe no. you did. That was November 28th. That was uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin met in, in Tehran and discussed war strategy. And they were planning that overlord at that time. And on uh, December 2nd, 1943, the Germans conducted a highly successful air raid on Bari, Italy. And one of the German bombs hit an, hits an Allied cargo ship carrying mustard gas, which released the chemical which killed 83 Allied soldiers. <laughs> wow. I shouldn't laugh at people being killed, but they, you know, they were carrying this mustard gas. And they didn't, uh -huh. uh, the the bomb just happened to hit that ship, you know, they didn't know right. what was in it. And so 83 of them uh, were killed by that, and it says over 1,000 other soldiers died in the raid. I assume maybe they were Allied soldiers. So that was even in uh, in December, even in December of 43, they were uh, hurting the Allies quite a bit here and there. So, and, and then yeah. uh, it was on the December 24th, 43, was this, I'm not, yeah, it has to be, 43. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower becomes Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, and uh, 
In, on December 26th, a German battleship Scharnhorst is sunk off North Cape in the Arctic by British cruisers and destroyer torpedoes. Well, that was one of their pride and joy, the Scharnhorst. Yes. But I guess it wouldn't have been doing much good after anymore anyway, so maybe it didn't matter. And then I want one last thing here in January 44. Count Ciano was executed by revived Mussolini's uh, by... Um, men. Uh, so, you know, Mussolini was uh, was put in that tower or whatever, and then he was rescued by the uh, the Germans, right. and then he was going again. I don't think he was in Italy, but um, maybe he was somewhere in Italy. But that Count Ciano, his son-in-law, had been discovered to be, uh, you know, had turned against him or something. So they got right. him and executed him in January of 44. And I didn't go any okay. further than that because there's just so much. Yeah, me too. Okay, we'll uh, go on into this 13th of March, 1944, midday. A I have a timeline for the, I'm sorry, I do oh, have. Okay, go right ahead. Yeah. The, I've got March 8th, 9th, 12th, 13th, okay. March 8th, the American forces are attacked by Japanese troops on Hill 700 in a battle that lasts five days. A Red Army offensive on a wide front west of the Dnieper in the Ukraine forces the Germans into a major retreat. This was serious. Uh, this was uh, March 8th of 44. And on the 9th, the Soviet long-range aviation carries out an uh, air raid on Tallinn, Estonia. The military objectives are almost untouched, but 800 civilians die and 20,000 people are left without a shelter. Just pointing out that they're, they were going after the, the Baltic countries big time and looking looks like they were targeting the uh, civilians and in on the 12th there was the creation of the political committee of national liberation in greece that was right at the time that the that the germans were leaving or maybe had left now on the 13th the uh, japanese troops end their failed assault on bougainville the american on american forces at hill 700 so they they're failing there was a failure of theirs on the 13th. And on right. this, this is, and now we're on March 13th, so this is what was happening right before this discussion here. Okay. Thank you. 13th of March, 1944, midday. A nursery for film actors. Futility of the art critics. Weber's Freischutz and Bizet's Carmen. It is often said that among our film actors, we have none capable of playing certain parts. That for, that, for instance, of the hero. This type of artiste, they say, is non-existent. I have never heard such nonsense. But to find them, you must, of course, look for them. Producers make the mistake of seeking always in the same old circle, the stage and the theatrical agencies. If they would look elsewhere, they would soon find what they want. One has only to think of the splendid types of manhood to be found even now after five years of war in our regiments. Some years ago, before the war, I passed a camp of the labor service, Arbeidienst, at Bergdorf. Immediately, my car was surrounded by a crowd of bronzed and laughing young men. I remember remarking to one of my companions, 
why don't our film producers come to places like this in search of talent? In a year or two, it would be possible to transform one of these lads into an accomplished actor, even if it were just for one particular part for which they are seeking a star. In this respect, Leni Riefenstahl has the right idea. She scours the villages in search of the peasant types that she requires. In the nature of things, the opinion of an art critic must not be accepted as an irrevocable and unassailable truth. His criticism is, after all, only the expression of his own personal opinion. When, in ten different newspapers, ten different critics give their opinion on one and the same work, ten separate personal opinions emerge, unless, of course, they've been, they have previously received instructions from interested parties. Has such an opinion any value? I doubt it. We're too prone to forget that the ancients disregarded the art critic. They judged a work on its merits, and they saw them which, after all, uh, is the natural method of selection. Any criticism, as it has developed since the beginning of the 19th century, means either the death of a work of art, since the critics never cease to tear it to pieces, or the death of the press, since the public would have no faith in the press in which the critic of each individual newspaper gives a completely different story on exactly the same work. If we were to be de deprived of art critics, we should not lose very much. One single critique signed with a well-known name may destroy the aspirations of an artist for as long as 20 years. Examples are, are not lacking. How many of the artists whom we admire greatly today were previously castigated by the oracles of the times? What is true of painters is true of artists in other fields. Do not forget that a single adverse critique by E.T.A. Hoffman was, sufficiently, was sufficient gravely to prejudice the chances of success of Der Freischutz. And yet this work, with its deep harmonies, had all the ingredients which should have appealed to the Romanticism in Hoffman. Think of Wagner, and how he was torn to bits for ten years by the critics. Had there been no one who appreciated him, it's questionable whether he would have continued with his work. The same thing happened with Carmen, and now the critics who tore these masterpieces to shreds are completely and utterly forgotten and the works live on. Nice little set there. It makes a lot of sense, too. Yeah, well, you know, he likes talking about art and the arts and exactly. culture and artists, and so uh, uh, we don't know who was there. We know we're not finding out who is present anymore, so that might have yeah, been something to do with that. it. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But this Der Freischitz was an opera by Carl uh, Maria von Weber. And it was quite uh, kind of unusual and had some oh, otherworldly kind of drama going on in it, uh, which is, uh, you know, talked about at the time. And uh, But it's considered a, a real masterpiece. And so that's what he's uh, referring to there. Um, and it reminding us that uh, dear uh, Wagner was even uh, criticized <laughs> by these critics. Oh, art critics yeah. are really, they're really terrible. I mean, they, they they work for newspapers, you know, they used to. 
And newspapers are owned, were all owned by Jews, so and, and that's right. Just uh, they just have way too much importance. And after a, any kind of performance or whatever, the opening night, you know, everybody's rushing to see what the critics have to say about it the next day. And it really did. They really did destroy it. Sure, that's true. Uh, people. And they might have been fairly correct most of the time, but, um, you know, as Hitler saying, people didn't have a chance, you know. They didn't, they didn't get to have a chance with the public. It was all up to the critics. And that yeah. uh, he really pans the critics a lot. That's right, stuff. and he, he was exactly correct. Their clout, it's a shame that they had such clout because what they had to say shouldn't determine the fate, uh, you know, of a person or his work, and uh, very good points. Go you said that they work for the paper. I mean, somebody's paying their checks, and you're not mm -hmm. going to uh, go against what that person paying your check, uh, how they feel. And so their opinions were already conditioned by their employers. Or the employer or the uh, papers would uh, put someone in that job who yeah, uh, that's right. someone they yeah. or also friends and you know, relatives and so on. Um sure. but but it all became the province of the Jews. Art criticism, art oh, yeah. galleries, uh, art uh, art everything everything to do with art was the province of the Jews. And you know, of course, when Hitler came to power and they started moving uh, clearing Jews out of the out of the arts, there was such a furor all around the world. They thought it was so terrible that they fired these Jews just because they were Jews and so on. And well, they were determined to get the Jews out of the out of the arts of Germany and make it German. Sure, it was a good thing that they did. Well, right. here for the uh, I've got two of them here. The twenty first of March, nineteen forty four. Finland rejects Soviet peace terms. Hmm. I wonder what those were like. Probably not too good for Finland. And on the 22nd, Japanese forces cross the Indian border all along the Imphal front. They're trying to invade India now. Mm -hmm. I don't know how smart that was. but And then in Frankfurt, it uh, just mentions that Frankfurt was bombed with heavy civilian losses. This is one of the bad bombing days. March 22nd for Frankfurt. Right. Yep. Okay, 23rd March 1944, midday. Charm of the Rhineland and of other parts of Germany. The marvelous countryside of Bohemia and Moravia. I saw the Rhine for the first time in 1914 when I was on my way to the Western Front. The feelings which the sight of this historic stream inspired in me remain forever graven on my heart. The kindness and spontaneity of the Rhinelanders also made a profound impression on me. Everywhere they received us and feeded us in a most touching manner. The evening we reached Aachen, I remember thinking that I should never forget that day for the rest of my life. And indeed the memory of it remains today as vivid as ever. And every time I find myself on the banks of the Rhine, I relive again the wondrous experience of my first sight of it. This is no doubt one of the main reasons, quite apart from the unrivaled beauty of the countryside, that impels me each year to revisit the Rhineland. There are other parts of Germany, apart from the Rhineland, which give me intense pleasure to visit. The Kiffhauser. The 
forest of Thuringia, the Harz, the Black Forest. It is most exhilarating to drive for miles through the woods and forests far away from the throng. One of my greatest delights has always been to picnic quietly somewhere on the roadside. It was not, a, it was not always easy for our column of cars would often be pursued by a crowd of motorists eager to see their Fuhrer off-duty, and we had to employ all, employ all sorts of ruses to shake off these friendly and well-meaning pursuers. Sometimes, for instance, I would drive up a side-turning, leaving the column to continue along the main road. Our pursuers would then overtake the cars of the column one by one and failing to find me would go even faster in the hope of overtaking me further on. In this way, we managed occasionally to snatch a few hours of peace and tranquility. On one occasion, I remember, a family out gathering mushrooms came suddenly on our picnic party. In a few moments, these kindly folk had alerted the neighboring village, and the whole population was surging towards us, filling the air with their shouts of, Heil. It's a great pity that the that Germans know so little of their own country. Since 1938, the number of beauty spots within the boundaries of the Reich had increased has increased considerably. In addition to Austria, we have the wonderful countryside of Bohemia and Moravia, which is a closed book to all but a few Germans. Some of them may have heard of the virgin forests of Bohemia, but how many have ever seen them? I have a collection of photographs taken in Bohemia, and they remind one of the vast forest of the tropics. To visit all the beauties of this country, a German today would require to take a holiday in a different district for each year of the rest of his life. That's something, that he would address a subject like that and talk about that during these, these times of utmost disaster and stress for the Reich. But, you know, he's talking about the beauty of the nation, uh, and then he says it's really a pity that Germans so, uh, know so little about their own country. Uh, well, they haven't had much touching. time to learn about yeah. Bohemia Moravia. You know, they just became a part of it in recent times, and sure. same with Austria. And, and he's kind of pointing out that, you know, our country is larger now, the, the Reich. I mean, the Reich is larger, and all this is a part of our country, and it's really wonderful because it's very beautiful, a lot of a wonderful scenery and so on. You know, I do notice, Ray, that he has not mentioned colonizing uh, during this particular right. section. Right, right. And he's talking about Germany. He realizes that they're back in Germany, Germans in Germany, and hope they can keep their own, you know, country. I don't know that he felt that they couldn't. He, I don't think he, uh, well, at times he did. Certainly he did, knew what the leaders of Britain and America and so on had in mind, and the Jews and so on. Yes. So he knew, but, you know, it's very noticeable that he's uh, busy talking about the Reich and German affairs, and he's not at all talking about how they're going to colonize in the East anymore. Well, that's a very good mm -hmm. point. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it reflects the turning fortunes uh, of uh, Germany regarding the military uh, battles and the conquest by the Soviets and uh, Americans and British. And, and they're, you know, they're backing up, backing up, retreating, fighting a defensive battle now. And 
so, you know, he, he certainly doesn't mention about, okay, we're going to colonize Ukraine and do this, yeah. that, and the other. It's all turned inward now, which is uh, is touching. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's beautiful myself the way he talks about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought this was uh, very nice. It feels very relaxed, and uh, he's not yes. feeling sorry for himself. You don't hear him ever. Uh, doing any complaining or, you know, he used to, he likes to do criticism, but that's a different kind of thing. He's not, he's not whining about anything, and he never did. He never did in his whole life whine about anything, as far as I can right. see. That's right. So, well, we'll move, now we're into move April. On, or do you have April something? Night. Yeah, I've got some things okay. for okay. Um, April 10th, 11th, 16th, 15th, and 16th. I'm not even sure what this next section is. What is the date of it? Mine didn't 17th give it right. May 1944. Okay, so 17th. Okay. So on the 10th, Soviet forces enter Odessa, Ukraine. These all kind of go together. Uh, yeah. And on the 11th, Soviet forces take Kirsch, beginning the reconquest of Crimea. That was a terrible, terrible development there. And on the 15th, the heavy air raids on the Plessy oil fields in Romania. That had been going on all along, but they are getting more successful with it now. They were air raids by both the RAF and the U.S. Air Force, heavy ones. And um, the Germans had been doing a very good job, I guess you could have said the Germans or Romanians, of, uh, with their anti-aircraft uh, artillery and uh-huh managing to shoot down these planes in the past, but probably becoming more difficult now. And on the 16th, Soviet forces take Yalta. That's uh, in the Ukraine, and the yeah, Crimea, I mean. Crimea. So that's where we are now. 17th, May, 1944, evening. Our religious policy. The state misses an opportunity. Modernism. Throughout the course of German history, the state has seldom had the opportunity of exercising any influence on the internal evolution of the church. Perhaps the greatest opportunity offered was during the modernist period, round about 1907 to 1909. It is true that the modernist movement was in many respects nothing more than a recrudescence of the old Catholic way of life, but in many other respects it was something quite new. If the state had then had the skill to exploit these aspirations to its own advantage, it would most probably have been in a position to found a German national church wholly independent of Rome. It must not be forgotten that the modernists were most sincere in their desires to reach agreement with the evangelical church. The state then had a golden opportunity of building a bridge between these two Christian faiths. But the state was too weak and missed its chance. It had none of the necessary vision to grasp the opportunity and to make the most of it. And so the game fell easily into the hands of the established church, which had but to continue to threaten and to excommunicate. For a priest in his fifties and defrocked carries no weight at all. The modernists themselves were so tormented with threats that in the end, they too were compelled to submit. The wrath of the church constitutes in life no idle threat. 
in the face of real crisis, the church does not limit itself to threats of hellfire and purgatory in the hereafter, but as tangible means of making life a misery for its victims on this earth as well. The modernist movement gradually collapsed, and the introduction of the oath of absolute obedience to church tenets imposed on all newly ordained priests gave it its final death blow. And that's an interesting thing. And, I, you know, of course, I wasn't aware of anything like that uh, about that modernist movement there in 07 and 09 that might, as he said, it might well have resulted into a German national church. Well, that I wasn't either. I, I wasn't familiar with calling it the modernist period, but it must mean that uh, the, uh, modernizing the church must be what they called it. And, uh, and it doesn't sound like it went on very long, but there was some opportunity, he's saying at this time, that they had to make some changes, but they weren't able to quite able to get them done. You know, you couldn't overcome the, what the church wanted. So he said, if that had, if something had happened then, that there may have been more success with the German National Church, independent of Rome. Now he, you know, is he talking about? He's talking about Catholics. He's talking about the yes. Catholic Church, but also the That's evangelical. Right. Uh, so he's kind of combining both of them. Uh, I really don't know much about this, but obviously he wanted to talk about it. He thought it was. Uh, well, again, he's thinking about the Reich, you know, and uh, how the Reich is going to yeah. be. That we still got this problem with the churches and the Reich, <laughs> as far as he oh yeah, and you've got you know he he always considered them a power entity, uh, mm -hmm. rivaling the state, and uh, and you know there at that last paragraph, Carolyn, where he says you know the church constitutes in life no idle threat, uh, because with their excommunications and whatever they could bring upon a person. He says they have the tangible means of making life a misery for its victims on this earth as well as, you know, getting after them and telling them in yeah. hellfire, purgatory, and whatever. Uh, in actuality, they could make life rough on dissenters. And, uh, well, the and then that entered. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and they, the introduction of the oath of absolute obedience to church tenets imposed upon all newly ordained priests gave it its final death blow. And uh, and that was a disappointment to Hitler because, you know, it would have taken this, you know, the big power entity of the Catholic Church and the seat in Rome, uh, and instead of evolving into a German national church with cooperation between the evangelical, uh, the modernists versus the uh, traditionalists of the Catholic Church, uh, the movement ended in failure and much to the disappointment of uh, National Socialism, uh, you know, that's that's how I saw it. Well, the people didn't have the strength to, they were too much, they had been too indoctrinated, they were too fearful of, of God and what would happen to them after they died and so on and not being able to have the blessing of the church when they died and uh, you know, that was too fearful for them. Uh, the church is very effective, is is very effective in in creating that. has been throughout the, I don't know how they are today, but uh, if they started out today, they probably wouldn't be very effective at all. But uh, going through all these ages of time, they've built that into people. And so when it comes down to it and the church uh, threatens them with uh, excommunication, well, they, they can't, they give in. They collapse. Right. So, 
Yeah. He's saying that we still got that same problem now. <laughs> Haven't solved that one. Okay, a timeline for the 16th of May. I've just got one on the 13th. The entirety of Crimea is now under Soviet control. Many thousands of German and Romanian soldiers have been captured, but many thousands have been evacuated. And the bridgehead over the Rapido River, Rapido River, is reinforced. I don't know if that's uh, in the east or if that's Japanese or that's German, the bridgehead over the Rapido River on the 13th. That was the last timeline before the 16th. Okay. 16th. May 1944, evening. Research and instruction. State encouragement for free research. The two tasks of research worker and teacher. Kant, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche. Instruction must be state-directed. My relations with the economists. The economists change their minds. The theory that independent research and instruction are two fields of activity which must be indissolubly related is false. Each has an entirely different function. Each calls for men of a different type, and each must be approached by the state from a different angle. Research must remain free and unfettered by any state restriction. The facts which it establishes represent truth, and truth is never evil. Well, that's a good point. It is the duty of the state to support and further the efforts of research in every way, even when its activities hold no promise of immediate or even early advantage from the material or economic point of view. It may well be that its results will be of value or indeed will represent tremendous progress only to the generation of the future. Instruction, on the other hand, should not, in my opinion, enjoy a like liberty of action. Its liberty is limited by the interests of the state and can therefore never be totally unrestricted. It has not the right to claim that same degree of independence, which I most willingly concede to research. The attributes demanded of a successful teacher and a research worker are fundamentally different and are seldom to be found together in the single individual. The man of research is by nature extremely cautious. He never ceases to work, to ponder, to weigh, and to doubt, and his suspicious nature breeds in him an inclination toward solitude and most rigorous self-criticism. Of quite a different type is the ideal teacher. He has little or no concern with the endless riddles of the infinite, with something, that is, which is so infinitely greater than himself. He is a man whose task it is to impart knowledge and understanding to men who do not possess them, and who, therefore, are generally his intellectual inferiors. And in consequence, he is a man who often is often inclined to be pedantically dogmatic. There are many men endowed with a genius for research who are useless as teachers, just as there are brilliant teachers who have no gift whatever for research and creative work. Yet all of them in their respective spheres make contributions of outstanding value to the sum of human knowledge. I do not agree with the idea that liberty of research should be restricted solely to the fields of natural science. 
It should embrace also the domain of thought and philosophy, which in essence are themselves but the logical prolongation of scientific research. By taking the data furnished by science and placing them under the microscope of reason, philosophy gives us a logical conception of the universe as it is. The boundary between research and philosophy is nebulous and constantly moving. In the great hall of the Lenz Library are the busts of Kant, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche, the greatest of our thinkers, in comparison with whom the British, the French, and the Americans have nothing to offer. His complete refutation of the teachings which were a heritage from the Middle Ages and of the dogmatic philosophy of the Church is the greatest of the services which Kant has rendered to us. It is on the foundation of Kant's theory of knowledge that Schopenhauer built the edifice of his philosophy, and it is Schopenhauer who annihilated the pragmatism of Hegel. I carried Schopenhauer's works with me throughout the whole of the First World War. From him I learned a great deal. Schopenhauer's pessimism, which springs partly, I think, from his own line of philosophical thought and partly from subjective feeling and the experiences of his own personal life, has been far surpassed by Nietzsche. It is the custom in Germany for students to pass from one university to another during the course of their studies, a custom, incidentally, which no other country has. But it would be false to assume that this variety in instruction is a safeguard against uniformity of outlook, for although the professors of the various universities fight among themselves, they are all fundamentally and at heart in complete agreement. I came to realize this clearly through my contacts with the economists. This must have been about 1929. At that time, we published a paper on certain aspects of the economic problem. Immediately, a whole company of national economists of all sorts and from a variety of universities joined forces and signed a circular in which they unanimously condemned our economic proposals. I made one attempt to have a serious discussion with one of the most renowned of them, and one who was regarded by his colleagues as a revolutionary in economic thought, Zwiedenich. The results were disastrous. At the time, the state had floated a loan of 2,700,000 marks for the construction of a road. I told Zwiedenich that I regarded this, this way of financing a project as foolish in the extreme. The life of the road in question would be some 15 years, but the amortization of the capital involved would continue for 80 years. What the government was really doing was to evade an immediate financial obligation by transferring the charges to the men of the next generation and indeed of the generation after. I insisted that nothing could be, more, could be more unsound and that what the government should really do was to take radical steps to reduce the rate of interest and thus to render capital more fluid. I next argued that the gold standard, the fixing of rates of exchange, and so forth were shibboleths which I had never reg regarded and never would regard as weighty and immutable principles of economy. Money, to me, was simply a token of exchange for work done, 
and its value depended absolutely on the value of the work accomplished. Where money did not represent services rendered, I insisted it had no value at all. Zwiedenek was horrified and very excited. Such ideas, he declared, would upset the accepted economic principles of the entire world, and the putting of them into practice would cause a breakdown of the world's political economy. When later, after our assumption of power, I put my theories into practice, the economists were not in the least discountenanced, but calmly set to work to prove by scientific argument that my theories were indeed sound economy. Fascinating there, Carolyn, because that, a lot of the basic tenets of National Socialism are right there. And the one uh, primary one that I think caused the uh, gang of uh, capitalists, super capitalists and, and money men all over the world to gang up and say, we got to put a stop to this, was Hitler's saying, you know, money really has no value other than as a, as a mean of exchange. It's got to be based on the labor, uh, you know, of the person doing the job. And in other words, he took the usury out of it. And that the National Socialist Economic Program, what that did was to hit the Jew, meaning the big bankers and all, in a place where it hurt them the worst. And that was in their pocket, in their wallet. And when Hitler did that and took control of the German money supply and gave it back to the German people, he signed his death warrant with these scavengers. And uh, all of these principles start at the end about interest and, and, and the real value of doing things, and they proved out to be very honest and capable. That's what had to be destroyed by the powers that be. Mm -hmm. Well, Ray, I think that... Um you're right there. I was impressed by that last part. It was nice that he added that. And uh, I think that from this, I think you are a, a natural teacher, and I'm a natural researcher. I'm not saying I'm the best <laughs> researcher or that I've been doing it for so very long, but I think that's more my my nature. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. I think that's a very accurate statement myself, and I, and I, I consider it quite a compliment. And uh, and you are quite a researcher, and uh, teaching, I, I've always felt, was my true calling. So I appreciate the, uh, your words there. Well, okay, and uh, we're going to go over just a little bit. So I'm warning the people listening live. I've got a few comments I still want to make about this section. And one is uh, that he brings up uh, Kant, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche. And this is, I have been in... Uh, in disagreements and discussions with people over Hitler's relationship or Hitler's uh, admiration for Nietzsche. And I, this exact sentence right here from Tabletop is what is often used, surprisingly, to prove, which it doesn't, but to prove that Hitler admired Nietzsche because he, he included him amongst the, the three most important philosophers in Germany. And, of course, he does, because Nietzsche is a very important philosopher. But Hitler himself had said that he wasn't all that taken with Nietzsche, and he, wasn't, he didn't really read him and, you know, as a, you know, regularly. But people want to say that, a number of people want to say that he had a huge admiration for Nietzsche, because he did have a relationship, not a personal one, but there was a relationship with Nietzsche's sister, 
who was very pro-national socialist, but Nietzsche himself wasn't. Um, of course, he died before any of that happened, but his sister uh, was a friend of the national socialist. But here he says, he says they're the greatest of our thinkers. And, uh, the, you know, you will find that this very sentence is quoted quite a bit. And here he talks about Kant, and he talks approvingly of Kant, and he talks approvingly of Schopenhauer and reminds us, as is well known, that he carried that little volume of Schopenhauer, small one, all through the war and would be reading it when he had the opportunity. And the only thing he says about Nietzsche is that his pessimism surpassed even the pessimism of Schopenhauer, which I don't take as a, a great uh, compliment of his. But So I wanted to bring that up. And what what else I wanted to say was, um, I guess that's it. I guess I don't. I well, have been a little something here or there, but I don't have it marked. So. Well, that uh, that was quite significant to me because you brought out something here that I picked up on it when I looked at it, Carolyn. But uh, but I kind of just let it go until you pointed this out here. When he talked initially about Kant, you know, and his contributions, and he specifically, you know mention him, and then uh, Kant's theory of knowledge, Schopenhauer built the edifice of his philosophy, Schopenhauer annihilated the pragmatism of Hegel. He talked about Kant and, and Schopenhauer, but he only had like one little sentence regarding Nietzsche. And he didn't, uh, he didn't elaborate on what contributions Nietzsche might have made or anything like he did the other two. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I think what you said there was right on. Yeah, and so now, as you pointed out, there's a heck of a lot of uh, good meat in that in those few paragraphs about this Zwiedenek that he's uh, that he yes. was in conversation with. Very, very yes. good stuff. Basic tenets um, of national socialist economic policy. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, and uh, we've got you know we got one page left, which boy, this thing ends on a very <laughs> triumphant manner, and I'm looking forward to that next week. Uh, it's going to add to next week's show, you know, a, a great start to it. We can talk a little bit about that, but I'm really looking forward to next week, and I'm glad you put out a, a notice. And I hope a lot of our folks uh, join in, and, and uh, you know, we're going to, you're going to offer your take on this book. I am. And then, you know, we'll uh, we'll accept some callers, and, and if they got questions or comments, they'd be, I'd love to hear them. We'll have plenty of time for the callers, so we'll exactly. see if we even we'll get any. Fine. If we don't get any callers, well, we'll just be able to have to prepare to have things to say. Anyway, but we'll yes, I think right. that I'm, I didn't even want to do this last section today, and, and we the timing turned out just right because I think it's just a perfect way to uh, begin our discussion of what we think about this. And I don't even like to call it a book because it really wasn't a book. Nobody wrote the book. It a collection of conversations by that's Adolf right. Hitler. Good so I, that's what we're going to be. Uh, we're going to give our take on that next week, and I'm looking forward to it also. So therefore, Good. on that, we thank you all for listening tonight, and we hope that you will join us next week for our last, our very last table talk program in this series. So there won't be any more. We hope you'll be with us for that. Good night. Good night. Mother.